For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast. In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. My name is Marshall. Take two. Take two. <laughs> we got about 15 seconds into the first take and then we're like, nah. Do over. Scrap it. Do over. <laughs> yeah. There aren't a lot of times in life you get to do a do over, mm. but uh, you can in podcasting. You can. That's right. right. Let's do some history work because we got a lot to cover today. Yeah, we do. Like a lot. A lot. Yeah, to the point where like, the amount of things we were going to talk about initially, we planned on talking about, we did kind of trim that down a little bit. But it's also an, an episode I've been looking forward to for a long time. Sure. Because there's a lot of good stuff here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So just to get everybody quickly caught up from what happened in the last episode, Constantine has, Constantine. Taken, has taken the throne of the Western part of the Roman Empire at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point foreshadowing <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, he has passed the edict of Milan which essentially legalized Christianity mm-hmm. so finally Christians don't need to hide right not in fear of persecution they're actually having their stuff given back to them they're being paid back for some of the damages that were done to them yeah um, so it's good times in the world of Christendom it is kind of Okay, so we we talked about this earlier. There, it's not black, it's not white. No, even shades of gray may not even be a good explanation. Mm-hmm. So my my explanation is when you look at a pepper shaker, there's black, mm-hmm. there's white, there's a little bit of black, mm. there's off white, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of what we're in right here. Sure, sure. There, there's not. There's no, there is no reason to try to cleanly categorize any human being or moment in history. No, no. And I don't know why we try to do that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We try to be like, oh, you good, you bad, done. Mm-hmm. And it, it just doesn't, it I doesn't mean, work with you that way. No, no. But it is. It does with me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. People just aren't like that. It's more complex. Situations are complex. Mm. And this was particularly complex. I feel like for a moment there, you were commenting on like the current state of politics in the world in which we live. I'm <laughs> commenting on the state of politics <laughs> so long as there have been politics. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just teasing. No, uh, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And the same is true of, of our good friend Constantine. Um, I'll just get us caught up to, to one of the main things we're going to talk about. He and Licinia, so he's the other guy who signed the Edict of Milan, running the eastern part of the empire, uh, they end up having issues. Apparently, Licinius kind of goes back on his word and starts taking stuff away from Christians again. That might have happened. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it was Constantine's excuse to become the sole emperor of the entire thing. We don't really know. We kind of poked at this a little bit last episode. Constantine comes in at a time when there's four emperors mm-hmm. divided because that's going to bring checks and balances. Not long later, there are two because Constantine thinks, what's better than four? Two. Right? <laughs> as long as I'm part of that too. And, and this is one of those instances where less is more, right? Less shared, Constantine. Less shared power is more power for me. Yeah, that's right. 
And now it has gone from two to one. Yeah. Why? Well, probably a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Constantine's reason would be, you know what? We serve one God. <laughs> one God that is head above all things. And it is a type of government. The Bible teaches soul <laughs> kingship. And Ugh. the same should be true for God's ruler on earth. Whomever that might be, in this case, that happens to be me. <laughs> there, was no, there was no chance for him to look to the east and say to his buddy, hey, you know what? I think God calls for a solo king. Right. And I think you should do that. You'd be great at that. <laughs> Whenever these people have these kinds of revelations, yeah. it always happens that they're the one. Yeah. They're God's chosen. How convenient. It, it's very convenient. It's very convenient. Yeah. So the Civil War, Constantine won. And, uh, and he spares Licinius initially. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like sends him off to a, you know, a nice farm tucked away somewhere. He meant well. But then a couple of years later... He has him hanged because apparently he was plotting against him. Again, maybe true. Um, we don't really know, but there's a bit of a pattern uh, in the life of Constantine that we'll we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Licinius isn't the only person close to him that uh, that's gonna dies die. for political purposes, questionable reasons. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So around that time, though, just kind of shortly after Constantine becomes the sole emperor of Rome. This champion of Christianity, as he was seen by many, um, he wants unity in the church, right? There's unity in the empire, political unity that he's at the head of. And he wants consensus within the church. He does. He wants them to sort out some of these kind of longstanding issues of division and debate. Which is a noble thing. It, it is, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want that. Yeah. And so he, he wants them to sort out a, a number of questions. Um, but one of the biggest questions centers around this particular character who has a peculiar teaching about Jesus. Mm-hmm. That man's name was Arius. Yeah, and, and I want to put a couple of disclaimers around Constantine on this, where, again, I think he gets dragged under the bus in a way that could possibly be unfair. Mm. One, Constantine doesn't come in and say, this is orthodoxy you guys sort it out right. and declare it to be so, mm. right? He's kind of new to the game Oh yeah, of Christianity, and so he's just coming in being like, you figure it out and let me know, Yeah, right? He's, he's not coming in with a preconceived statement no. of bring this about. He's involved, but not, not in an overbearing dictatorial way, which right. is... Which, I mean, to his credit, is uh, very uncommon behavior for an mm-hmm. emperor. So, <laughs> And, and, and the, the second thing I want to say is when he sees himself, and he does see himself as not only head of the state, but also of the church, mm. he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to be doing it in a way where he says, I am the chief theologian, theologian mm. but is to say, I'm in charge of making sure the church is capable of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like a, more of a protector. He feels a responsibility over the church, but it's going to be his son that calls himself the bishop of bishops, mm. right? When mm. his son secedes him later, Constantine doesn't go there. Right, doesn't go quite that far. No. Um, so we don't. Does Constantine dabble in this? Yes. Is there political reason for some of his dabbling? 
sure. Um, does he come in and just declare himself, you know, with papal authority and start affecting what are the teachings of the church? Not really. No, no. So he wants to address the teachings that are brought forward by this guy, Arius. Um, Arius at this point is an old, older man. Sure. Uh, He's been around for a while, born in North Africa, devoted student of the scriptures, studied in Antioch under a guy named Lucian. Um, He was, when they were having this big divide over readmitting Christians who had lapsed, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. The Donatists. uh, He was was pretty permissive in that, and so permissive that he was kind of thrown out of the church for a short time, but then readmitted as they were kind of sorting out, you know, who's who's good and who's bad. And it's just, it was a mess. Like, yeah. And, and an it, absolute could, mess. it could only be a mess. Yeah. Right. Like you, mm-hmm. you imagine this is hot on the heels of the great persecution. Mm-hmm. And so the church has been scattered and underground since its inception, mm-hmm. but pressed particularly hard underground. And now all of a sudden it is, it, it goes through this sort of, weird moment where it's just it's hyper illegal Mm -hmm. to where it's not so illegal to where it's blessed by the state and practiced by the emperor yeah all within five years yeah it's crazy and so you can only imagine that when these things these things these people and their teachings come to a surface there's going to be a bit of looking around and being like who are you Right. What have you been up to? <laughs> right? Where where there's yeah. been there's been communication, mm-hmm. but not perfect communication. Mm-hmm. It's not safe to communicate over long travels. And so there is a lot of cleanup. Mm-hmm. And the biggest part of that is what do we do with all these people who decided to save their skin and are now being like, I'm back. Yeah. It's tough. It's a hard thing. It is. It is. Yeah. No, totally get that. Um, with with Arius, um, the biggest controversy with him, though, was not so much his position on whether or not people get back into the church. That kind of sorts itself out. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't anyways. We'll <laughs> it, talk, right. let's talk about that later. Um, but it was his teaching surrounding the Son. His teaching surrounding Jesus Christ specifically became a matter of concern and debate Mm -hmm. in the church had been for a long time had been already in his local circles yes in his local circles so he essentially taught that the son had a beginning of existence unlike the father right um therefore there was a time in history when the son did not exist therefore the son is not of the same substance as the father he is different than the father on a foundational core level mm-hmm. um some people say he was you know influenced by earlier thinkers like origin but origin origin is kind of taught eternal subordination so what that means is that the son was always subordinate to the father but but arius goes further and he just claims that the son's not eternal right so i i think i think one of the best ways to bring this back to scripture Mm-hmm. And understand the thinking. In Philippians chapter 2, we have the statement that seeing equality with God is something not to be grasped. 
Jesus humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. So his his bodily coming to the earth was subordination to the Father. And all throughout Scripture, or through the Gospels, Jesus talks constantly about doing the will of the Father. This isn't my will, it's the will of the Father. Mm-hmm. So there is no denying subordination. Mm-hmm. The question is, was he subordinate beforehand? Mm-hmm. And is he subordinate now? Right. Right? That's the question. Yeah, or was it a temporary shift right for the purpose of redeeming humanity and so when we read philippians chapter 4 the correct reading is to say he saw equality with god not a thing to be held mm. not, it, when we say grasped it, it doesn't mean achieved mm-hmm. like jesus isn't aspiring to be that's mm-hmm. not it it's it's are we gonna is he gonna hold on to this Cl- cling to it yeah. right and he humbles himself mm-hmm that is not to say he was inferior and acknowledged his inferiority. Mm-hmm. Those are different things, yep. right? Uh, for someone to say, no, I am a peer, yet I don't see this as something to be held to. I'm going to humble myself before my peer, and I'm going in order to complete a task. Mm-hmm. And as he completes the task... Philippians 2 goes on to say, after he has taken on the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has raised him up, given him a name above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue would confess on heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hmm. And so this teaching that he was different, inferior in the beginning, all throughout his time on earth, and even now, is the problem. Right. That's that's the real question and the real problem that the room is trying to address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, hold on. I'll also add this. Mm. That's why using the Gospels to make this point is not useful. Mm-hmm. Because while Jesus was here, he acknowledged mm-hmm. that he was inferior to the Father in these mm-hmm. ways. Now, you could go to John, because John... Well, yeah. In Archaean Yeah, because that's, that's what the, the opponents of Arius, that's one of the spots they go to, will be to the book of John. Um, but yeah, so like, I mean, because here, here's, the, here's the, the thing, right? In, in his mind, the Son isn't really truly divine in his essence. He's given Godhood by the Father. Right. Right? That's an issue. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Um, and so this causes stir in Alexandria and Arius gets exiled there uh, from there. Um, but by this point, Arius already has a number of supporters who protested this decision. Um, and Arius's views are spreading through the empire. People are starting to talk. Have you heard about this Arius guy? Have you heard about what he said about Jesus? Oh, you know, if you read this verse, maybe it makes sense. And I don't know how we, I feel about this and it causes this stir and so Constantine hears about this, calls a council for all the high-ranking members of the church to attend and sort out this question and some some other some other questions as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, so the invitations go out. Church leaders from across the known world, especially the East, um, show up, and they gather at uh, Nicaea, which is 
northwestern Turkey, if you can picture that on a map. Yep. Um, and there's on this issue, there's essentially three main groups. There are those who are support Arius and say, yep, the son is not like the father. There are those who are against him, like hardcore Trinitarians. Um, and then there's undecided, right? There's, there's a lot of people who don't know where they stand. And, um, you know, most historians agree that there's, there were 318 bishops in attendance and each bishop was allowed to bring five delegates with them. So there might've been like 1800 people that were there, Mm -hmm. big gathering and Constantine himself attended and he acted as an overseer of the whole thing, but he doesn't vote. Right. He doesn't direct like he doesn't you know he doesn't really give any significant input to the process he's just kind of there to say i i brought you all together to figure this out do it yeah and this is such a beautiful thing and where you where you get into those areas where church history builds your faith and affirms mm-hmm. your faith mm-hmm. it is so common for people to challenge the Christian faith by asking a question and pretending like the church just woke up one morning believing a thing and no one ever thought about it before. Right, right. Right? And when, when people are like, well, have you ever thought about... What they really mean is, you know what I finally thought about? <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it comes... Yeah. And, and, and this is not to say arrogance against every person who's anti-Christian, it's arrogance across the board of humanity mm. that we fall into this trap of, I never thought about that before, which probably means no one has ever thought of it before. <laughs> right. right? And these right. these kinds of questions get brought forth in a way to say, well, has anyone ever asked the question? And we say, yes. 2,000 years ago, <laughs> this question was asked, and we've been talking about it ever since. Right, right. Right? Now... Granted, the question wasn't always asked. Mm. These things are, like we've said earlier on, we stand on the shoulder of giants. We continue to grow and to learn. And so, arguably, theology is, in some places, better now than it was before because we've learned from thinkers and commentators and and digging into the Bible for a very long time corporately, Mm -hmm. right? In the same way that you would say, uh, a person who reads the Bible the first time probably doesn't understand it as well as a person who's read through it 10 times. Right. Right? You can add to that if the person who's read through it 10 times teaches someone as they read through it 10 times, mm-hmm. that second person becomes compoundingly more aware. Right. And this is how church history, the theological history of the church, grows the church into a stronger place. What isn't the case is that at Nicaea, all of a sudden, someone raises their hand and be like, hey, I got a question about the status of Jesus. And and that's the way it's presented to us by the world, mm-hmm. right? It's presented to us by the world like, no one ever talked about this until Nicaea. Mm. Well, there's a reason for that. The reason for that was leaving your home could probably get you killed <laughs> as a Christian, yeah. yeah, right? Yeah. And even with that danger people were talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But how stupid would it have been of the church to have been like, we're going to gather 300 of our leaders in one place 
to talk about this topic mm-hmm. under the great persecution. Right. It would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. So these things have been discussed. These things are people that are, are ideas that the church has cared about from the beginning and thought well about. Right? Like, mm-hmm. e- even if we want to jump into the generational arrogance of we're more educated now than we were then, I would just say read the church fathers and then reread it because it was probably too deep for you to understand it the first time through <laughs> and realize we're not superior mm-hmm. in our capacity to think mm-hmm. over these people. Yeah. They were doing hard work at, at a fledgling state. And that's what brought Nicaea together. And it is it is really an an awesome thing to watch unfold. Mm-hmm. And so what, what happens when you get all these guys together is the proponents of Arius's views kind of get up, make their statement. Yep. And the place just explodes. Yeah. They are not happy. You you wonder, did they get up there going? this is not going to go well. Mm. Or did they get up there going, people are finally going to see. They're right. going to see. And and then they read, so are they shocked mm-hmm. at the response? Or are they like, yeah, we were ready for that. Well, the other thing too is, you know, it was a lot, took a lot more time and energy to copy writings and circulate them over large, you know, large mm-hmm. territories. So it could be that a lot of these bishops who were coming to attend had only kind of heard about Arius's views secondhand. They're like, you know, we've heard about this guy, we've heard what he's saying, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna just reserve our judgment till we we actually let him and his followers speak for themselves. And then when they did, they're like, oh no, this is bad. This, right. This is just as bad as we thought. Or I, I've had this experience in my life where I wanted to defend a guy. Mm. I, I really liked some of the stuff that he was doing. Mm-hmm. I really liked his his style and just his demeanor, some teachings that he had that were just really impactful. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, he's just getting slammed by our camp of Christianity and, and many camps of Christianity mm-hmm. over a book that hadn't even come out yet. And I was like, you got to read the book before you can make your decision. And I can still feel it sitting in a sidewalk cafe in Lima, Peru, in the dead of night, reading this book that I instantly downloaded to my Kindle the moment it was released so that I could defend this guy. And and then I heard, I read him saying the things that people were saying he was going to say, and I was angry. Was it Rob Bell? It was Rob Bell. <laughs> was it Velvet Elvis? Which one was it? No, it was uh, Love Wins. Oh, Love Wins. Okay, yeah. And uh, so I was, I Velvet Elvis is shady Mm -hmm. and in hindsight problematic Mm -hmm. wanted to give the benefit of the doubt sure and here i was prepared to defend this guy and now all of a sudden i just want to throw my kindle yeah couldn't afford to do that (laughs) uh but yeah it was that kind of could be that kind of thing too right Mm -hmm. like that would cause an uproar like man i i just wanted to i wanted to root for you yeah and and you are what they said you would be and Mm -hmm. that's disappointing yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of, of the debate. I mean, essentially both camps had their reasoning for their, their various positions. Uh, but the, what we would call the, the Trinitarian or the Nicene 
core uh, one out, essentially. Those... Hold on. Are we just going to skip over Nicholas? I know we talked about it at the Christmas episode, but not everyone listening okay, to this listened okay. to the Christmas episode. So apparently, apparently at, at Old St. Nick, Old St. Nick, at some point in the proceedings, got so upset that uh, he actually either punched or slapped Arius in the face. I hope it was a slap. Yeah. yeah. Um, ho, ho, ho. Who wants to go? <laughs> yeah. Santa Claus uh, is, you know, what did we say? Oh, he's here to give gifts and punch heretics and he's all out of gifts. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, there's there's some hilarious like ancient church art of of Nicholas slapping Arius in the face and then go, and then he goes home and gives gifts to children yeah it's like preserved in in art in like cathedrals and stuff. it's crazy anyways right. so yeah so it gets heated it gets it gets real heated um until they essentially decide there, there's a there's a word there's a greek word that we have to talk about because it kind of defines the final decision mm-hmm. homoousios which essentially means of the same substance or of one substance. In English, we call it consubstantial. Consubstantial, yeah. So meaning that the father and the son are of the same substance, essence, whatever whatever you want to say, right? That, that the son is not a created being. The son is not a lesser being than the father. And right. that, that's where they end up landing after months of debate. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are probably asking the question, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Where is he in this discussion? To be honest with you, he doesn't come up in the discussion, not because it wasn't on the radar of the early church, but because Arius didn't really give much thought to the Holy Spirit Yeah, in, in none of his writings or anything. And so they're dealing with what's on the table, and that's enough to condemn Arius and his followers. Mm-hmm. Not only do they declare him unorthodox and remove him from the church— he also gets exiled. Yeah. And they burn as many of the, his writings as they can find. Him and two of his buddies that follow him, mm-hmm. which at some point makes you wonder, like these three guys, mm-hmm. like, do they stay together? Are they just I'm, hanging out? Are those, are those other two guys just sitting there? And Arius is like, I know what we should do today. And the other guys are like, you know what? You've had suggestions in the past. <laughs> <laughs> now, he got exiled to like Illyricum, which is like Greece or adjacent to Greece. Right. And at this time of year, I'm like, hmm, Greece doesn't sound too bad. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. They could have sent him north. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, so he gets exiled. But the reality is, is that he's not exiled for long. No. There's there's a lot of flip-flopping. Is that, can I use that? Term? Sure. In the yeah. history podcast, flip, there's a lot of flip-flopping, a lot of waffling that's going to happen over the preceding decades. Yeah, and, and that happens when we make decisions, right? You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, well... <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. I, I would say this. When we see when we see the flipping back and forth over Arius, um, it's never to a point where it becomes the dominant idea. Mm. And it's never a point where it's a persisting idea. It's always a flash, a popping back in. Today, the only people who ideologically can really be traced back to Arius outside of like random pockets of Arian churches mm. are the Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. And maybe the Mormons, but even the, the Mormons are kind of, uh, you know what? They're so I, out I of think, left field. I think Arius would have condemned the Mormons. 
Well, pro- for other reasons, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I but I think I think he'd be pretty on board with, with Jehovah's Witness. Or Jehovah's Witness, yeah. 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 And, and I think because of their position on Jesus mm-hmm. and some of the legalisms that yeah. they get into for for earning and maintaining salvation, mm-hmm. um I think I think Arius would maybe not have taught that, but in hearing it would especially where he stands with the Donatists and that sort of thing. Probably gone along with it. You might have been down with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to talk about a couple a couple characters who play a role kind of in how this plays out. Um, and they both have the same name. Yeah. <laughs> just to make sure it's not confusing. Yeah, just to make... just Yeah, Eusebius and Eusebius. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, good luck uh, staying on track. No, we'll, 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 should we use code names for them or short? Eusebius. You said, when we were chatting earlier, you said Eusebius C. And Eusebius Nick. Eusebius Nick. So Eusebius of Caesarea and of Nicomedia. Mm-hmm. I guess Eusebius, Eusebius must have been like Dave was like 40, 50 <laughs> years so. ago. It's like everyone's Dave. Like if I meet a, if I meet a man, especially if he's from a Christian family, and he's between the ages of like 50 and 70 and I don't know his name. I can guess Dave and there's a there's a half decent chance. Dave oh, yeah? or Dan? Dan's another one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean they're just kind of like nowadays like you don't really meet well I was about to say you don't meet a lot of Daves and then I've got a nephew named David so I should probably <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Sorry Vicky. You know, it's back it's back in vogue but uh it went out of style for about it's so I mean Eusebius must have just been in style at that point. Yeah, and, and the beauty of it is Eusebius Nick does the opening monologue. Yeah. The opening ceremony of Nicaea reads his thing. People reject it. Mm-hmm. Not having it. Yeah. So Eusebius C steps up almost just to say, I'm not him. <laughs> and this is where I stand on a couple of things right. that some people have been asking questions about. Right. I just wanted to clarify we're different. <laughs> we are not consubstantial. There you go. <laughs> he and I are not one. We are separate beings of a different substance, <laughs> theologically and physically. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So Eusebius of Caesarea uh, is often kind of noted as being the first church historian. Yeah. We've, we've mentioned him a few weeks ago. Yeah. And he has written much of the stuff that we've been following. Yeah, totally. I mean, we have him to thank for a lot of the information that, that we've had. Um, he wrote, I mean, he wrote a world history mm-hmm. that is a little less known because it wasn't as well preserved called the Chronicle. Um, he wrote church history uh, from which we've been using. Like I have a translated copy on my desk. that oh, I Don't tell people that. Just let them think that you've been reading the ancient texts. Oh, that, like, like I've been reading it in the Greek? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, would sure. take way too long and wouldn't make sense. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he wrote a biography of Constantine uh, after Constantine died. Uh, and then he himself passed away shortly thereafter. But, I mean, an avid writer um, considered to be one of the greatest minds of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Eusebius of Caesarea was on the Trinitarian side of the debate. Um Eusebius Nick, not so much, as no. you mentioned. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. he was from the same school as Arius. Um, 
So, I mean, it could be one of those things. He eventually, it's, what's interesting, what happens with him is at the end of the Council of Nicaea, the bishops have to kind of sign this document, the mm-hmm. Nicene Creed, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he signs it, but later on he says that he signed it with hand only, but not heart. So I guess he felt like he was compelled to say that Jesus was divine when he didn't actually think that or something. Right, so so if people are asking, is he one of the other two guys to get exiled mm-hmm. with Arius? No, mm-hmm. he's not. Um he seems to sort of be one of those people who's like, yeah, I'm persuaded mm. at the end of the debate, right? Mm-hmm. So he reads this thing at the beginning that is rejected. Not full-on Arian. It's a, it's a different thing that he's reading. Mm-hmm. People are like, not down with it, mm-hmm. right? This is sort of like the precursor before Arius comes and makes his statement. Uh, but he does the whole... I signed it, but I wasn't really feeling it, mm-hmm. and faces his problems later. Yeah. Well, and the reason for that is because not long after Nicaea, Arianism kind of comes back into fashion. Mm-hmm. So then, when it's cool again, he's like, you know what? <laughs> I was I was with that I was with that crowd before it was cool, and they're like, but you signed the Nicene Creed. Well, I with my hand only, not my heart. Mm-hmm. I've always been an OG Aryan. Like, come on, right. guys, right? Like that is that is his that is his line, um, and he, you know, he gets real cozy with the emperor. Um, he's a gifted politician. He knew how to leverage his power within the church and his proximity to the emperor to kind of push his own agenda forward. Which is a thing, all of a sudden. Yeah, like that's that's one thing that we we can't ignore. Mm-hmm. Once the church comes out of being persecuted mm-hmm. all of a sudden it goes from being an enemy of the state to a friend of the state with political power yeah and it doesn't know what to do with this yeah right like that's if you think about it as an individual that's just too much mm-hmm. to go from being enemy of the state to all of a sudden your president prime minister saying what do you think i should do right Right, and the the church is in this position now for the first time ever, a position that just a a generation before people would have said Christians participating in politics mm-hmm. is oxymoronic. Mm-hmm. You can't have that paradox. Uh, not the way politics were taking place mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, um, and and now all of a sudden they're there, and they have power, which encourages two things. One, it encourages genuine believers to compromise for power, and it causes people of power to fake their faith in order to elevate their power. Yeah. And neither one of those are good, Mm -hmm. and both of them happen. And persist for a long time. Very long time. Right. Um, Again, if, if being... Christian, and in this instance, the right kind of Christian, mm-hmm. is kind of contingent upon having those those places of favor with the right. emperor, then I'll be an Arian when it's cool to be an Arian, and I'll be a Trinitarian when it's cool to be a Trinitarian. Right. Whatever it means to keep my mm-hmm. my properties, my political clout, my rule. Mm-hmm. And, and when we say a long time, let's just put some numbers on this. We're talking 325, yeah. Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. The Reformation comes 1500s. Yeah. And 
from now. We've said a couple of times, this is not the dawning of the Catholic Church as we know the Catholic Church now and in the period of the Reformation where there was so much money to be had in cloud that all of a sudden theology nearly disappears mm. for the political gain of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the birth of that, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. This, this is where that begins. Mm-hmm. And it's going to persist for another 1,200 years before it's ever even brought into, into serious check. Right. There are reformers along the way who say this is going, this is going too far. Mm-hmm. But 1,200 years before people say stop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely stop. Yeah. Um, that's that's kind of how we just just to do a quick bridging of the gap between where we're at and where we'll see people end up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's there is a little bit of rise and fall in the first few centuries sure. because of what happens with Rome, and don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we'll we'll get there soon. Um, but yeah, it's definitely this kind of problematic marriage between church and state, mm-hmm. which again you get to a place where like you finally get to like the early Baptists that are like separation of church and state is a good thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Where like even the early reformers are like, no state church, right. Anglicanism. Oh yeah. Like th- those are, those are Lutheranism. Those were state, Calvin. Yeah, Calvin was that state way. churches. Right. So it takes a while for people to kind of realize this. Maybe this isn't the greatest idea ever. Um, so Eusebius Nick um, is actually the one who baptized Constantine on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. Um, Constantine waited uh, a long time uh, before actually being baptized. And there's there's speculation on the why. You know, was it that he was not entirely convinced his whole life? Um, one, one, one argument, which I think maybe lends itself a little bit more is, you know, and it, with it, you have to kind of understand that his theological understanding might not have been as well-developed as ours, mm-hmm. but he did some bad things as emperor. Yeah. Right? Executed family members, wife and his son. Yeah, for for political reasons. One of and, his sons, the other one secedes him. But yeah, one of them. Yeah, yeah. And so, essentially, in his mind, it could be, well, I'm going to get baptized when I'm done doing all my dirty work, and before I die. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to actually be baptized in the Jordan River, but he became ill and and couldn't couldn't make the journey. Yeah, one of the things that that we see in his theology and the theology of Constantine practiced. Mm-hmm is his the traditions of how Rome recognized and acknowledged uh, victories and defeats and things like that with the gods mm. is something that Constantine just sort of takes Jehovah God and applies that, right? And so there's there's this weird marriage of Roman polytheism and Christian monotheism mm. that Constantine does, right? Mm. Constantine's not a theologian. Well, Sproul would say he was. He's <laughs> not a great theologian. Everyone's a theologian. <laughs> Everyone's a theologian, yeah. He, that's true. Everyone has their ideas mm-hmm. on God. Sure. And, and he definitely had his. Uh, but he's not someone that we would go to and read and be like, what did Constantine think? Because that could sway my opinion. Mm-hmm. on deep theological issues. That's not Constantine. Mm-hmm. He struggles with his Roman upbringing and his acceptance of Christianity and how the two come together. And he he does create a bit of an amalgamation of the two, mm. right? Uh, it's, it's never helpful to assume 
on a person's motive and their eternal destination Mm -hmm. and all those kinds of things. But man, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of whys asked about Constantine. Mm -hmm. Why was he baptized when he was? Why did he continue to like literally murder people? We don't, Mm -hmm. we don't mean like there was a jury and a trial and an execution Mm -hmm. all within his political reign. Um, why did these things persist? Mm-hmm. Was it all politically motivated? Was it a confusion of the two? Um, there's no way to really know, mm-hmm. but he does leave a lot of questions. Sure. Yeah. He's a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause he, at the same time, both does, you know, from, from the, the time of the early church, like is one of the most, positive like just some of the most positive work for the church through the edict of milan right mm-hmm. like i mean let, let's be honest like rather than systematic slaughter of the church he liberates them mm-hmm. and and acknowledges them and honors them and and tries to make reparations so i mean like on that on that end of the spectrum it's like there's not a lot of people who've done better than that on that scope sure right? on that level yeah. Yeah. right there's not a lot of people that that you know, not only people have been in that position to be able to do something like that, but let's be honest, like that's significant. But at the same time, some of the things that he did or, you know, set the stage for some real dark things, which would come to dominate the church in, in later centuries. Yep. So, And his motivations are, are questionable, but the answer lies with God. Oh yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. And <laughs> this whole Aryan thing, because we kind of want to close the book a little bit on, on Arianism, but it does continue for a while. This Arianism thing is not so much of a flash in the pan, mm-hmm. uh, as it were. So Eusebius, um, he consecrates a bishop named Ophilus, and he sends him north of the empire to go convert the Goths and the Vandals, um, who were not like angsty teenagers, but actually like Germanic <laughs> tribes of barbarians who, right. um, you know, uh, spoiler alert, uh, make a re-entry in, in a few decades uh, or about a century, I should say. Um, a pretty meaningful one. But he goes to convert these bar- barbaric, put air quotes, barbaric German tribes and does so successfully, but he's an Aryan. Mm-hmm. And so now these massive warlike tribes have embraced Christianity, the Aryan version of it, mm-hmm. um, and they are going to be important in the future. And so Arianism is going to exist to some degree for a number of centuries right. after this. And the succeeding emperors after Constantine are going to kind of flip-flop between the two um, for a little while anyways. Um, and then there'll be a peg and just kind of thrown into the mix because why not, right? Um, keep it interesting. <laughs> keep it interesting. Mix it up. But yeah, we... These things, they have a way of kind of reappearing, and yet ultimately the the Trinitarian view, that, that which has lasted throughout church history, mm-hmm. um, wins, wins the day um, in spite of, you know, these, these massive threats of this, you know, false teaching, this heretical teaching. And on a practical, you know, personal current day level, that is comforting. It is. Because there was a time where it seemed like this view that denies the deity of Christ was the dominant view within the church. Mm-hmm. At the time that the church was finally gaining a sense of freedom and, and 
um, consistency and unity. Right. And so, and so the question is like, is this what it's going to be? Like, is this, this prominent false teaching going to just take over completely? Yeah. And, 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 and it didn't. And you look at it today, it's, it's nearly gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and I know some, someone say, well, you mentioned the Jehovah's Witness, which is a huge organization. Mm-hmm. But the Jehovah's Witness wouldn't consider themselves part of us. No. They, they don't call themselves Christians in the way we do. No. It's not a denomination. It's an other thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And they see it as such. Mm-hmm. Right. So to say, are they a branch of the church that holds to this different teaching? No. Mm-hmm. And they will be the ones to tell you that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and today we have our own versions of this. We have our own concerns mm-hmm. within the church, problematic trends in teaching and theology. And that seem to be kind of picking up steam and, and, and you wonder is, is this what it's going to be? Like, is the church in a hundred years mm-hmm. going to lose all semblance of like sound biblical teaching? And the answer, I think, is no, that's not going to happen. Right. Because we've been through this before. Right. We've seen we've seen false teaching kind of take a promise. You think of like the prosperity gospel. It is huge. Right. in Africa and South America and parts of Asia. It's massive. The Americas where, yeah. where it was birthed. Yeah. And exported. Yeah. It's been. A, yeah. It's right. A, prosperity gospel is an American export mm-hmm. and an American church problem. Mm-hmm. But now like, I mean, churches in Africa and, and all over the place are just mm-hmm. like, they're just gobbling this stuff up. Right. And you're like, is this what it's going to be? Is this the future of Christianity? And the answer is no, not in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of these things. Unfortunately, kind of, they, they come up, but ultimately truth will win out. Right. Yeah. And, and the Lord will preserve his church uh, in the long run. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else you want to nail down? I'm good. Before we go. All right. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada. It's produced by Alex Walker. See you later. Talk to you next time.